All right, the rest of us, let's find in our Bibles once again Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you're just joining us this morning, we are in a mini-series that ends next week, actually, on the church, kind of answering the question, what is the church? And this morning, we'll start looking a little bit at what the church does. This could be more than just the six or so Sundays that we've looked at this. This could go on for a long time, but we're not going to do that. We're just picking out some essentials, I think, that are essentials for especially in our church life now. And we're going through some of those. We're using Acts 2 as our springboard, but using many other passages just to teach about the church and what is having a good understanding of it. You remember that the word church is the word ecclesia, which simply meant to the original hearers uh, an assembly of people called out for a purpose, gathered together for a purpose. And it is, of course, the church of Jesus Christ that he promised to build in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is the body of Christ that begins in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when Jesus, as promised, poured out his spirit on his disciples. And the church was born, this new entity in this new era. It is the assembly of those who believe in Jesus and are dwelt by his spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and in each true believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit resides, and God is in this age building up this temple in completion, all of those who belong to Jesus Christ. It's quite a remarkable thing to be a part of, of the body of Christ and to be in the church age and to have such a privilege as we do. This week we're going to focus on what the church does, at least one thing the church does, one responsibility it has. And I want to put that before you before I even read this passage. What we need to know is this, that the church is the community of God's people in this age who have been entrusted with the truth of his word. We are the community of God's people in this age that have been entrusted with the truth of his word, the Bible. And that he has designed that truth to be preserved among his people. And one of the ways that it is preserved and the way that it works within his people is that he wants it preached and taught to his people on a regular basis. That the word of God, the Bible, was designed by God to be taught to his people, to be proclaimed publicly to his people. One of our primary God-given means of spiritual growth is what we're doing right now. This is God's design, not mine or any of the apostles. This is His design, as we will see. And I'll hope to show that to you in a number of passages. But let's read to begin. I want to begin by reading, taking the time to read through the first Christian sermon ever preached. Acts chapter 2. 
beginning in verse 14, by the apostle Peter. Don't let it escape your attention now that the first act of the Christian church, when it was born and as it was first grown by 3,000 people from the original 120, was the act of a sermon. That's not an accident. Now listen to this, beginning in verse 14, Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For These people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit out on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are hearing, uh, seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's end our reading there and let's ask God's blessing on the word preached. Father, I ask now humbly for the gifting and help of your spirit as I teach and preach and also among this congregation. Give us ears to hear. And eyes to see and hearts to understand your truth in the word. Help us, God, to buy into your design of the church in who we are and in what we do and in what we focus on. Your spirit lead us in that direction. So we ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.
the very first act of the Christian church on its birthday, after having received the Holy Spirit, is that one man stood up in front of that congregation. He lifted his voice and he proclaimed God's truth to those people. You'll notice that there were three passages of Scripture that he referenced. Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Joel chapter 2. You'll notice in addition to that that there was a response from the crowd in verses, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It was effective. Now, it's important to understand that not every sermon has this effect. As a matter of fact, in just a couple of chapters, Stephen, gifted by the Holy Spirit, preaches a sermon to the Jews listening to him, and they killed him at the end of it. Thankfully, that's not a common occurrence. (laughs) Preachers are glad that doesn't happen very often. I'm just showing it doesn't always end up in people being saved, but this is the means through which God has chosen to proclaim, teach, preserve, and protect biblical truth. The preaching and teaching of the Word of God is essential to the church's life because what we will very soon find as we go through some other passages is that the church did not just begin with this thing of public teaching and proclamation and exhortation from the Scriptures, but it was the design of Jesus that it continued that way. That what we see is that God gives teachers to the church to continually teach them. This is what continues through the New Testament, gets even more clear for us, and those are some of the verses that I want to look at this morning. Now, let's do this. I want to put up on the screen 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. You'll remember now that Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, Timothy is in the position of what we would probably refer to as a the senior or lead pastor of the congregation in Ephesus. Timothy and Paul had been there some time together. Paul spent some time there ministering. And when Paul left, he made Timothy stay. And Timothy is overseeing this congregation, and that's where he is when he writes 1st, 2nd Timothy. It's the same Ephesians church that Paul writes to in the letter to the Ephesians. It's the same church that Jesus eventually writes a letter to in the book of Revelation. But that is the Ephesian church, and that is what Timothy's doing. Now listen to what, and this is why 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, and Titus are called the pastoral letters. They're the pastoral letters because these men, Timothy and Titus, were doing pastoral work leading over these churches. Timothy was in Ephesus, Titus was in Crete, And it was giving instructions to them on how the church should be structured and the focus of the church. 
And this is what he says. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, now listen to this, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You'll notice immediately what should catch your attention is that there is proper church behavior. That's what the whole theme of 1 Timothy is, by the way, laying out certain specifics about how the church is to function. We must understand that the church never bore the right or authority to just make up what they wanted to do. Everything that they were to do was to come to them from the scriptures, from the apostles who were around in that first century, planting churches and teaching the church how to be the church and what the church should do. There is proper church conduct in the household of God, but it is the church of the living God as opposed to all of the other assemblies of false gods. This is the one true living God's assembly, the real people of the real God. But you'll notice this statement, he says, the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. These two terms, pillar and buttress, they are actually construction terms. So those of you who are kind of into construction You will appreciate these perhaps in this metaphorical analogy that Paul is putting forward to us here in 1 Timothy 3. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar was a a cylindrical column supporting a structure. This was big in uh, Greek and Roman architecture uh, of of that day. And... um, A buttress or support is really essentially a foundation, that which provides a firm base for something, the foundation of a building. And the reason maybe that Paul uses this term in connection to the church and the truth that we'll talk about in just a minute is probably because of that temple. Remember that that temple of the goddess Artemis or, or Diana, depending if you're Greek or Roman, what you called her. And there was that, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Remember that? Well, I have a picture for of us this morning. Why don't we put that up, uh, Austin? This is that, this is what it would have looked like. Quite a spectacle. Now, look at, notice as you look around this uh, building, those pillars that sit there so prominently. They, of course, provide structural support, but they're one of the prominent features of this Building. As a matter of fact, there were 127 of them that went around the entire temple, and they were all gold-plated. So as you're going up, one of the first magnificent things you're going to notice were these pillars, these columns. They stood out. The support, of course, is what that is on which the temple is resting. And what Paul is saying is that church, you are that pillar supporting the truth. And you are the foundation upon which the truth rests. You are the temple that gets the depositee, really, of God's truth. It is to be prominent among you, just like those pillars are as people are going up. What is the church to be known for? The church is to be known for the truth. 
This is the number one thing we should be known for is the truth. Without the truth, we're not the church. Without the truth, as Scripture would define the truth, we're just another assembly of fake, dead, non-living gods. It is the truth, you see, that we possess that's been given to us by God. It is that truth that sets us apart from everyone else. We are the pillar and support of the truth. What is the truth, you might ask? Is there a way we could summarize it Yes, there is, and we get that way from Jesus Christ in John 17, verse 17. Let's put that up on the screen. He says, he's praying to the Father here, and he says, sanctify them in the truth. And just so that no one would be confused about this, because Pilate, one chapter later, is going to say, what is truth? Jesus says, set them apart, Father, my people, my body, the church, set them apart by the truth. Thy word is truth. Friends, if you're a Christian, one of the most foundational things you've got to believe is that this Bible is the truth. People say, why? Well, because that's what Jesus taught me. And I'm like a Christian and stuff. It amazes me that people call themselves Christians and they follow Jesus and they deny the truthfulness of Scripture or question it. A true follower of Christ goes into the Bible and says, what did Jesus teach about the Bible? Did he teach anything? Did he say anything? Yes, he said, it is that by which the church would be set apart and it is truth. And it doesn't matter, you see, friends, if the world doesn't believe that, It doesn't matter if your professor at the university doesn't believe that. Who cares what they believe? You're the pillar in support of the truth. It's been entrusted to us. We follow Christ. His word is truth, you see. It comes with a great responsibility to be entrusted with God's word, which is truth. What you have to catch on to very quickly in this world is that the whole world, John said, is under the power of the evil one. And Jesus said of the evil one, the devil, that he is a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning, and he's the father of it. Where did lies come from? They come from the devil. And he spreads that throughout the world. We shouldn't expect the the world to do anything with the Bible other than laugh at it. Reject it, mock it, make every attempt they can to try to prove it untrue. Part of the cosmic, eternal battle that the church is a part of and must participate in then is the preservation and proclamation of the truth of the word of God. We are the people in this world, says Paul, says Jesus, who have the truth, believe the truth, proclaim the truth, you see. And how is it that Jesus has designed his church to primarily proclaim and defend this truth? And what we will see is that it is through biblical preaching and teaching. It's one of the primary ways in which God preserves his truth among his people. 
But each week even, people are gathering together in churches. And if the pastor is being faithful to what he's supposed to be doing, he is getting up and he is reading a passage of the Bible and he's teaching from the passage of the Bible and he's connecting the word of God for people and he's giving the sense and he's exhorting them from it. This is how the church, one primary way in which the church preserves the truth. What we find is not only was the church started through the means of spirit-empowered preaching and teaching, but the church would also be sustained through these means. And this is all part of God's design. Now, with that in mind, let me have you turn to Ephesians chapter 4. There's a couple of these passages this morning I'm actually going to have you turn to. Some of them I've uh, tried to be convenient and put them on the screen, but some of them I want you to turn to. This is a key passage in thinking about what the church is, what the church does. Let me begin reading in verse 1. I want to make some comments through this. Paul says, chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But, listen to this, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and listen, and he gave gifts to men. Let me just pause right there and say this. One of the things Jesus did when he was exalted into heaven, back in Acts, chapter 1 and 2, then he pours out his spirit. With the spirit came gifts. And Paul first makes it clear that everyone in the body receives from Jesus through his spirit spiritual gifts. It's part of being into the, the body of Christ, being a member of it. It's that you have these spiritual gifts whom you have from God that Jesus, when he uh, when it was time, poured out the Spirit on his church and has been doing that ever since. So when you receive the Spirit, you receive these gifts. Now verse 9, he says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Just saying, I think what he's referring to here probably is in essence uh, the eternal Son of God descends into the earth. How? through the incarnation, and he lives his perfect life, and he does his teaching and his uh, miraculous deeds and all of those things, but then he's crucified. He's risen again after 40 days. He is raised into heaven. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1, and that's when he pours out the Spirit. And what does he do in verse 11? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now these four, and I'm not going to go into each one of them, 
The ones that I think remain are shepherd teachers, which I, and most likely this is uh, pastor teachers and not two different giftings here. He's probably implying shepherds who teach because that's what shepherds do. Um, we were going to install Mark uh, Verashka this morning, but uh, they are sick. And so in the province, God, that's getting delayed two weeks. But uh, we're installing him as shepherd teacher. May not be the primary lead teacher uh, that, you know, is getting paid to do this, but he's a pastor, elder, overseer. We, we see that in Scripture. But anyway, that's the one that relates. Somewhat evangelist, but probably in Paul's day, these were church players that would go out and bring the gospel to where it wasn't. They're planting churches and spreading the gospel. And then, of course, apostles and prophets, we believe that ended uh, uh, with the last apostle being the apostle John. I'm not, I won't go into why we believe that to be true. But notice one thing that's true about these four gifted uh, offices of men. They are all speaking gifts. What they did in their ministries was speak the word of God, like apostles and prophets evangelists and shepherd teachers. These are all gifts of speaking. But you know, as he gives them, listen, listen to this in verse 12, we'll read on, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. He's given gifted men as gifts to the church to speak the word of God, to equip them for ministry, yes, but also to build them up in biblical doctrinal maturity so that they're not carried away by every wind of doctrine that's out there. So that every new fangled teaching that shows up on the internet isn't something that carries them away. What's, what's securing them and what's keeping them kind of grounded and putting fences around what they believe is the shepherd teachers in the congregation who are faithfully teaching the Bible. This is one of God's primary means for people to grow spiritually, to into maturity and into Christ's likeness and keeps them safe. You know, it's interesting in um, Titus chapter 1, and you don't have to turn there, but um, when Titus was given the instructions to appoint elders, he was given their qualifications. And one of them, he says, they are to be... um, uh, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. But listen to this, verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. To the true and faithful word, he must hold firm so that he may be able to give uh, instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, the elders of the church have to be solidified in biblical truth so that they can teach the congregation because that's Ephesians 4. This is God's design. And so that they can contradict those who come into the church 
and disagree. Or they can contradict those who are putting out public teaching and they can contradict those things for the congregation, which is one of the roles of a pastor. When there's new winds of doctrine out there, it's wise for a pastor to look into it and then to teach his congregation why we don't buy into that, why we don't believe This is part of the role of being a shepherd teacher. And they are, look at this, verse 15, they're speaking the truth in love so that the church grows. I know sometimes we use that verse to just say, you know, well, this person's irritating me, so I'm going to go speak the truth in love to them. But, and, that, and there's truth in that. In, prin- in principle, that's true. Speak the truth in love. But what it's really saying is these men with speaking gifts with a love for God and a love for his truth and a love for his people are speaking to them the word of God and they're teaching them and then the church is responding to the word of God and the church is growing up into unity, into Christ-likeness, into maturity. You know, there are some Christians and we love them, bless their hearts, but they don't, they, they haven't really stuck around a good Bible church, not Bible church, but Bible teaching church long enough to grow in maturity in their doctrine. And so they're very easily swept away into different things. And there are real gaps in their maturing process because they aren't fitting into the model that Jesus has put forward. Do you notice what he says throughout all of Ephesians 4? He's saying, he, that is Jesus, he's the one that gave this. He gives the gift of gifted teachers. Instead of a sport coat, maybe I'll start wearing a big ribbon around me every time I show up to you all. And you'd say, you think you're God's gift to this church. And I'd say... Well, I mean, kind of. (laughs) Only by His grace and by the power of the Spirit. But this is something that we see in Scripture, and so the church really needs to buy into this, right? We want to do things the way that Jesus has established them because it's His church, right? And the proper church conduct has ordered things this way. This is why the church has the responsibility to demand biblical fidelity of its teachers. They have the right to demand it. And the church, as it's growing up into maturity and doctrinal soundness, should be able to detect that which is not true, you see. This is the way Jesus has designed it for his church. In keeping with this, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I'll put these two verses up on the screen. Timothy in verse 13, Paul tells him, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. What is really the one main thing 
that especially the pastor teachers that are doing this full time are laboring in, what are they, what is the main focus? Paul was like, just sit down, listen, this is what I want you to do primarily. You focus on this until I return. Here it is. You devote yourself to this. It's the public reading of scripture to exhortation and to teaching. You know, one of the things that bugged me in part of my seminary training is having to read books by men who had more of a business mind than a Pauline mind. And they want to incorporate all the business models and CEO growth. I had a conversation with a man recently, not from this church, I don't even know if he's a Christian, but we were just talking briefly and he found out I was a pastor and he goes, I'd love to talk to you about how, you know, because he, he does something in business where he teaches other businesses how to grow and, and he's like, well, you have a product and, you know, you need to, you want to grow in this area of producing your product and get more customers and all this kind of thing. And I didn't even, I didn't really go into it at the time. It wasn't appropriate and it wasn't the time to do it, but I'm, I'm just thinking that's not at all what I want to do. That's not even in the realm of even being close of anything that the New Testament teaches pastors to do. We are taught to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. That's your primary responsibility. That's your primary shepherding duties. Now, there are others, other, other things that shepherds do and pastors do as they minister to people care for people. There is some overseeing that you have to do and managing over projects and that, and depending on the size of your church and how many leaders you have helping, that will vary. But really, he told Timothy, with all these other things I'm telling you to do, devote yourself to this. And he says three verses later, look at how important this is, verse 16, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, persist in this, For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. How important is that? Paul's like, this thing that you do, be in this, do this. Because by doing that, there's a saving effect in you and in your hearers, those listening to you in the church. What a powerful statement. This is the way that Jesus has designed his church. Second Timothy then, this is why Paul, trying to encourage Timothy, and again in his mission, because between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he became very discouraged. And he writes to them in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I have that up. All scripture is breathed out by God. Remember, Timothy, what this is that you have and where it comes from. The source of power for the change of God's people is not you, Timothy. It's the Word. Unleash it upon the people of God and let the Spirit do what the Spirit does in the people of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Just picturing one sermon, all of those things come out. That the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work, he goes on to say, I charge you then in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Do it when it's popular and when it's not. You maintain your proper view of the truth of God's word and how the church is the depositee of God's word and you then take those scriptures, you read those scriptures, exhort them, teach them, and proclaim it to your people. And then you just trust God to do whatever it is that God's gonna do with the results of that. You see how important it is, friends, for us to have a good grasp on, on what God has designed for the church. I don't have it on the screen, but he goes on to say in 2 Timothy 4, 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and listen to this, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. You, though, Timothy, preach the word. Friends, don't miss this. The public proclamation and teaching of the word of God was from the very beginning of the church. As a matter of fact, we could go back even into Israel. This was God's design as well. But from the very beginning of the church, God has designed it so that there are men who are set apart that can teach, preach, encourage the people of God from the truth of God's word. That's what it means to be people of the book, that we give ourselves to this. And you can see how important it is that the church buys into it because there's a time, Paul says, that they won't buy into it anymore. Sound teaching takes endurance from both the teacher and those listening. This is the way God has designed it for his church. I'm going to leave us with this. In 1920, a scientist named Bernard Grenfell discovered a number of ancient papyrus fragments while excavating in Egypt. Now, papyrus was the paper of the first century and into the second century. It was paper. Essentially, what it was. And on these fragments were written all kinds of Greek manuscripts and pieces of manuscripts. Okay? Not just from the Bible, but all sorts of ancient literature. And uh, some of it literature, some of it just very common things that they found there in Egypt. He took those and brought them back to England, and they were all stored somewhere. And in 19, about 15 years later, in about 1935, a scientist, uh, uh, Papyrologist is what they are called. But, uh, they're the guys that just study papyrus fragments and samples with their whole career. They're probably not a hit at the cocktail parties, but they are a very valuable group of men, uh, people uh, that they can study these and they can date them and they can read those ancient languages, including Koine Greek, which was what the scriptures were written in. And he found this little fragment about the size of a credit card had writing on the front and on the back, and he detected that this was a portion of John's gospel. In fact, it was uh, John chapter 18, and according to what these guys that study that kind of paper in ancient uh, days they would do, they, they could look at that and they could say, well, I would date this about 125 AD, which is what he did. And he published this, and it became the oldest fragment 
of New Testament writing that we have in our possession out of all of over 5,000 manuscripts and such, this is the oldest one. Brings us back to within 25 years of the Apostle John who wrote it. Now what's significant about that discovery is that back in the 1800s, there were many scholars, a lot of them from Germany, who liked to teach the Bible but didn't believe it. And so there was a couple that were saying, you know, the Gospel of John probably wasn't written by John, wasn't written in that first century time period because the theology was so sophisticated. Like, the early church didn't believe Jesus was God. This came about much later in time. So this Gospel was much later than probably in the, to the third century even. So into 300, uh, or fourth century really. No, second, uh, third century, which would be 200s and beyond. And that couldn't have been John because John was dead by... 8090. So it's interesting that 50 years later they discover this fragment that dates that would say then their theory of John being written way later in, you know, the third century isn't even possible because this was clearly not an original copy of John. This was a copy of copy of copies. And as a matter of fact, it was put, it's, it's on both sides. Let's put it up there, can we? This is now on display. There's, there's the display. You see how small it is in there. Like I said, about your hand about the size of a credit card and show the other picture here it is broken up front and back okay front and back that's greek uh writing on there and um and what's interesting is front and back because by this time they were the church had started compiling these letters from paul and uh, gospels from john into books early books called uh the codex, they, they would actually take these and so you'd read it like a book and you could turn the paper and you'd be reading like, they were already doing this by what? 125, 130 AD, it had already been copied so it helped prove the dating of John in the first century. But what I think is really cool in the way God did this is what's on, these two, on these, this manuscript front and back. It comes from John 18, the front side is John 18, verses 31 and 32. It's Jesus' interaction with Pilate. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And then on the back side of this document is John 18, 37, 38. And now think about this. Every Every day, I'm sure, the John Rylands Library is open there in Manchester and people can come in here and see. I don't, anybody been there? I've not been there. Uh, anybody been there? You see this little document in that display and it's in the Greek, but of course they'll have translation down of what it says. And this is what people are reading from Jesus himself. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. Listen to this. For this purpose... I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I love when God does things like this, and you're like, yay, God. The oldest manuscript evidence we have is of Jesus saying, I've come into the world for this purpose, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone, like the people in this room, who is of the truth, that is truly of the truth, the truth of my word, I am the truth, believes in me, the gospel of truth, everyone listens to my voice, you see. 
And Christian, listen to this. Our responsibility in this world, the reason we are here is to bear witness of the same truth. The body of Christ being given the truth. Bear witness to the truth, church. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't cower in the face of the lies of this world. You promote it and proclaim it. And when you get a pilot, a pilot that comes along and says, well, what is truth? You say, the word of God is truth. The gospel is truth. Jesus Christ is truth. We are the people responsible, friends, to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ and of his holy word in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great responsibility that you have entrusted to us. We want to be like the psalmist, God, in Psalm 19, who delights in your truth more than riches, entertainment, anything this world offers. Please, by your spirit, make us that way. And may this church always preserve the truthfulness of your truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.